Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. Scotland is in dire straits. She was overwhelmed at Dunbar when a ragged charge from Scottish knights fell apart as it hit the solid line of English horse and lance. William Wallace had shown what Scotland was capable of with a stunning victory at Stirling Bridge, but had then fallen foul of the longbow at Falkirk. His talismanic influence only increased following his capture and brutal execution in London, but the reality was that once Edward Longshanks had built the world's largest ever trebuchet, Warwolf, and used it to savage the last of Scotland's strongholds, Stirling Castle, by 1305 it seemed that Scotland wasn't just on its knees, it was out for the count. But just as William Wallace had stepped into the breach when all had seemed lost just eight years earlier, now a new and even greater leader soon rose in Scotland who would shake England to its core. Because in 1314, England would experience a tumultuous shock that proved that Stirling Bridge had been no fluke, and in fact had just been a harbinger of something even more devastating to English ambitions and more warming to the Scottish soul. Welcome to Bannockburn. After Wallace's fall, two new guardians of Scotland were chosen. John the Red Common, an ally of the Balliol clan, and Robert the Bruce. The two were implacable enemies, but it seemed they may have patched up their differences when they made a pact. If the Bruce declared himself king and rose up against the English, Common would support him in exchange for a large swathe of new lands. But legend has it that Common fancied both the lands and the crown for himself, and decided to snitch on the Bruce. So while the two were at an English court in London in the winter of 1305, Common whispered poison in Edward's ear, and the English king now sent men to arrest the Bruce. But a man named Ralph de Monthemer warned Bruce of Longshank's intentions by sending him 12 pence and a pair of spurs. Bruce took the hint and fled on horseback, making it back to Scotland, where he now invited Common for a little chat. At a priory in Dumfries, Bruce accused Common of treachery, drew his sword, and struck him down in front of the high altar. Apparently, snitches do get stitches. And so began the rise of Robert the Bruce. Just six weeks later, he was crowned King of Scotland on the 25th of March, 1306, and he immediately set about his quest to free Scotland of English domination. But things didn't get off to a good start for Bruce, and he was defeated and nearly captured by the English at the Battle of Methven. He was unhorsed three times, and three times had to be rescued by his knights. Seeing the way the wind was blowing, Eventually they formed a cavalry phalanx and burst away, fleeing north and probably overwintering in the Hebrides, sheltered by a lady romantically named Christina of the Isles. It was here, at his lowest point, that Bruce watched a spider struggling to weave a web 
in the mouth of the cave in which he was sheltering. The spider was in a battle with the Scottish winter, and every embryonic web was quickly destroyed by the wind and rain. But the determined spider carried on regardless, and eventually succeeded in building a home strong enough to withstand all the weather could throw at it. The metaphor was clear, and as legend has it, this was the moment the inspired Bruce resolved to do the same for Scotland. You can still visit these caves today, on the Isle of Arran. By the spring of 1307, Robert the Bruce and his supporters were back, and set about a systematic freeing of Scotland from both the English and the Commons. The English were beaten back at the battles of Glentrool and Loudon Hill, where the Bruce funnelled his enemies into a gully and crushed them with rocks and arrows from above, while treating them to a charge from massed pikemen. Now the momentum gathered pace. Several castles were captured, and in 1308 the Bruce defeated the Commons at the Battle of Inverurie. This whistle-stop campaign was brilliantly successful. In just two years, Robert the Bruce had gone from watching spiders in caves to holding his first parliament at St Andrews in March 1309. By August, he controlled all of central and northern Scotland. He was helped in no small part by the death of Edward Longshanks in July 1307. He had been on his way to Scotland to do battle with the Bruce, but died of dysentery en route. Longshanks had been a ruthless and successful English king, and Scotland's formidable enemy. But he left the crown to his son, Edward II, who possessed none of his guile, military brilliance, or administrative acumen. He did, though, inherit his father's arrogance, and still believed in his God-given right to lordship over Scotland. And so, when the Bruce sent terms of peace to the new Edward in 1310, they were rejected outright. In response, the next three years saw the Scots go on the rampage, with one English stronghold after another captured. Linlithgow, Dumbarton, Perth, the Isle of Man. And then in 1314, the major prizes of the castles of Roxburgh and Edinburgh fell to the Bruce's supporters, James Douglas and Thomas Randolph. Now came the piece de resistance, Stirling. The critically important castle guarding the main north-south route through Scotland was still held by the English, and Robert the Bruce now laid siege to it. Edward II, who had been sitting on his hands and arguing with his barons these past years, finally roused himself to act. He gathered a huge army of 20,000 men and sped north to confront the Bruce and bring the Scots to heel. It was the largest army to ever invade Scotland at this point, and included 2,000 heavy cavalry. Edward himself led this war-winning host, and facing him were just 6,000 Scottish spearmen under the Bruce. So, on the 23rd of June, 1314, the two sides prepared for a duel which would reshape the balance of power in Britain. And they would do it 
at a small river south of Stirling, called the Bannockburn. The battle began with an epic episode of single combat. While the Scots watched the approaching horde, an English knight in the vanguard, Henry de Bowen, spotted the Scottish king inspecting his troops. With thoughts of glory flashing before his eyes, the knight lowered his lance and charged. Sat atop a small horse and armed with a great axe, the Bruce calmly watched his adversary come, remaining stock still. On the knight came, hooves thundering, lance expertly poised at Bruce's heart. For de Bowen, fame and immortality were just seconds away. Just as it looked as if the bloodthirsty lance would crash right through the king's armoured body and steal his life away, the Bruce nimbly swept himself to one side, raised himself in his stirrups, and brought his mighty axe down on the helmeted head of de Bowen as he swept by. Like a grapefruit dropped too hard, helmet and skull burst open, spilling brains and blood to the grass. The Scots maniacally screamed defiance and joy as de Bowen's lifeless body crashed from the saddle. His was the first life lost that day, but nowhere near the last. The English who had been approaching in marching rather than battle order now endured a highland charge from the exultant Scots, causing the vanguard to crumple and flee back across the Bannockburn. The English archers were at the back of the line, and the marshy ground and the Bannockburn itself made any English counterattack impossible. The battle had started late in the day, and as dusk began to fall, the Bruce allowed some celebrations, but not complacency. The Scots had given Edward's army a bloody nose, but this was still a fearsome army. In the gathering dark, Edward made the fateful and dubious decision to make camp right by the river, and the English army struggled to pitch tents, eat or sleep on the boggy ground. Instead, the English foot soldiers broke discipline to raid the supply wagons and spent the night drinking themselves senseless. The next morning, the weary and red-eyed English formed into a disorganised mass and began to cross the burn. The Scots, adopting their favoured Chiltern formations of massed pikemen, prepared to ward off the English cavalry and force back their infantry. The English knights did indeed charge several times, apparently not having learned the lessons of Stirling Bridge. The dense hedges of pikes cut open, disemboweled and impaled horses and men, sending the survivors fleeing. The potentially battle-winning English longbowmen could find no place at Bannockburn to effectively bring their arrows to bear, and the Scottish Chilterns now advanced into the seething, sodden and exhausted mass of infantry. With marshland on all sides, the Scots could not be flanked, and the result was a grisly and vicious melee of hand-to-hand fighting in the marsh and mud of the Bannockburn. Men were battered to death by warhammers, scythed open by pikes, or simply fell over and drowned, unable to stand back up in the press and mud. Still the massed Scottish pikemen came on, in good, 
impenetrable order. Horses became stuck in the mire, their riders easy prey for spears. The soaking earth grew wetter still with blood and the contents of men's emptied bowels. The gruesome reality of battles is often not made plain enough in the histories we hear today, but they were truly shocking affairs. Men and horses would be screaming in anger, desperation and pain. Bowels would open in fright and death. Blood would be everywhere, severed limbs and spilled intestines, the noise of shieldwood and sword steel clashing incessantly, people you know hacked to death in front of you while you try to do the same in the opposite direction. Every one of your senses would be filled with blood, mud, human waste and a terrifying cacophony of the harshest sounds imaginable. These were the things endured by those fighting for freedom and liberty to achieve William Wallace's dream of never living like slaves. Slowly but surely, the compact Scottish Chilterns pushed the disorganised crowd of English backwards. The battlefield was already too narrow for the huge English army, and the press of men became greater and greater as they were compressed against the marsh and the burn. The more this went on, the less able the Englishmen were to even raise their swords, and now even the Scottish camp followers joined the slaughter. As Edward's army scrambled backwards, Scottish womenfolk rushed forward, falling on helpless, mud-stuck Englishmen with knives, or else holding them down to drown in the mud and water. English alarm turned to panic, and panic turned to rout. Edward watched on as his powerful army was reduced to a mad mass of frantic men, desperate to escape Scottish steel. Seeing the writing on the wall, the fearful Edward fled in horror, eventually ending up in a fishing boat at Dunbar, from where he scurried back to England. The English lost possibly 12,000 men at Bannockburn, some estimates say as many as 17,000. It was an overwhelming victory for Scotland, and even more so as they had captured 154 high-ranking English nobles. Scotland's independence wasn't yet achieved, but they had delivered a staggering blow to England which would never be forgotten. The largest ever English army in Scotland had been decimated, and now Robert the Bruce, King of Scots, would take the fight to England. Join us next time for another invasion, but this time the tables had turned. Thanks for listening. See you then.